0: Hello and welcome, greetings from the Offensive Security Group here at SecureIT 360. It is Friday, so it's time for another one of our Week in Review. Uh, for those who are new or just joining us on this episode, every week our Offensive Security team is kind of combing through uh, the interwebs, the cyber space, uh, tracking, researching, analyzing threats and vulnerabilities and exploits and techniques uh, with the purpose of keeping you up to date. Uh, on what's relevant and happening and important in the industry. So hopefully you can be more prepared today than you were yesterday to protect your organization. So today, uh, we've got myself, Spencer, and Victor uh, hello, on hello. the podcast today. And Victor is part of our Threat and Tell team, uh, who joined us recently. Uh, he's been working behind the scenes on a lot of the stuff that we present to you on our Threat Perspective and our Week in Review uh, so looking forward to talking about some of the, the interesting tidbits of the news this week with you, Victor. All right. Same as well. Cool. Uh, so today we are talking about three very interesting things. The first one being uh, octopus or what is kind of being referred to uh, as octopus. Uh, and that is an ongoing fishing campaign that uh, is targeting Okta credentials. Uh, We're going to talk about BEC scams and look at kind of uh, an investigative analysis of a particular BEC campaign. And we'll talk about the rise of LMK files and some ways to detect them. So the first story is uh, about Okta. Uh, Now, we talked about this about three weeks ago, I think it was, on the podcast. In a week in review, we talked about Twilio and some others that were breached. Uh, And we were talking about this uh, quite a bit. And this is uh, the same group that attacked Twilio was observed targeting many other organizations. So this article uh, by Group IB, which I will uh, share here. Uh, So this group, uh, this organization, Group IB, released a, a nice article, a detailed kind of analysis of this Okta phishing kit, which is codenamed Octopus, which is super interesting in and of itself, right, Victor? And what a clever name, right? Okta, exactly. Octopus. Uh, perfectly named. So according to uh, the researchers here at Group IB, there was uh, 130 organizations compromised and almost 10,000 stolen credentials uh, in these phishing attacks. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Um, but according to IB, Group IB, rather, this has been underway since March 2022. Uh so really interesting uh story, real interesting uh attack on some really big names, right? They went after Microsoft and Cloudflare and Twilio and MailChimp. Yeah, I saw um, DoorDash as well. DoorDash and a whole host of other ones. Uh so really interesting one to to kind of pay attention to and look at. Um there was some tried and true techniques, right, in this, Victor, that, that you saw that you were kind of paying attention to. What are some of those things that, uh, you know, I think, I think adversary in the middle or man in the middle was one of those things. What else kind of stood out to you in this? So as far as
1: the attack process, uh, the threat actors started their attacks by targeting mobile operators and telecommunication companies and could have collected the numbers from those initial attacks, uh, next up, they sent phishing links uh, to targets via text messages. And uh, those links led to web pages mimicking the Okta authentication page uh, used by the uh, target's employer. Uh, victims were then asked to submit Okta identity credentials in addition to MFA codes that employees use to secure their logins. Uh, so basically, this is yet another phishing attack showing how easy it is for adversaries to bypass. Supposedly secure multi-factor authentication.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the part that's interesting too is is the way that they're using that man-in-the-middle attack to steal those MFA codes, um, and uh, you know, using things like Evil uh and NGINX and things like that to make a, uh, to proxy those requests through uh, is is super interesting and something that. Obviously, we're going to see more of right. This is clearly working against some of the larger tech firms. So yeah, this it's is something still ongoing that we'll, as far as yeah, now. yeah. Something that we'll definitely see continue um, to be a thing. And uh, you know, this uh, this article kind of describes the attack process. They give some detailed uh, statistics around the amount of credentials stolen, uh, the amount of MFA codes that were obtained, uh, where. The organizations were uh, geographically. Most of them, I think, were in the U.S., but there was other countries that were targeted as well. Um, so all, all in all, good research, uh, good kind of detailed overview of this attack, uh, how it happened uh, or is happening, um, and provide some, some advice for mitigation too, right?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So uh, defending against social engineering attacks targeting 2FA codes specifically, It's not easy. Uh, The general recommendation is to pay attention to indicators of suspicious emails and phishing sites. Um, I also saw that security experts also suggest using U2F. uh, And for those who don't know what that is, that's a FIDO-compliant security key. Uh, It enables Internet users to securely access any number of online services with uh, just one single security key instantly.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. So with the prevalence of these attacks, right, with threat actors stealing those MFA codes, uh, they're able to capture those OTP codes, those one-time codes, you know, the six-digit code, and they're able to trick users into submitting them. So a good way, like Victor mentioned, to mitigate that is with physical security keys. Now, you can use your phone if you want to. Uh, you can get uh, a physical token like a YubiKey. I have one in my desk somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, they're like little physical keys that you can plug into the USB drive uh, and that can be your multi-factor token. So in order to obtain access to your account, now I have to have the password and I have to have that security token. And those can be used for all sorts of, of ways to authenticate. It can be used for passwordless authentication if you've heard that. Um, and like uh, Victor was mentioning user awareness. User education is a big uh, core component of this. Uh, teaching users the the red flags, the warning signs of these suspicious text messages and these phishing emails and things like that is also pretty important. Cool. Uh, so the next article uh, comes from Mitiga. Uh, and the title is Advanced BEC Scam Targeting Executives on Office 365. Now, first thing I'll say is um, I'm somewhat hesitant. I don't know if you agree, Victor, on this, but uh, I'm hesitant to call this advanced. Uh, I think this is just tried and true business email compromise methodology. Uh, I've seen this quite a bit, uh, but I don't know if I'd call it advanced. Would you agree with this is advanced? I'm curious on your thoughts on that.
1: Uh, definitely says advanced over here. got to take another look at it, but um, yeah, I would agree.
0: Cool. So, yeah. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is uh, kind of uh, the way this works is uh, you get a phishing email, you get compromised. The, uh, the attacker does some reconnaissance in your email box, uh, looks for some emails that are ripe for um, fraud, particularly emails that are correspondences related to wire transfers or some sort of money transfer. They will set up a fake uh, fake domain, fake email addresses, lookalike domains, lookalike email addresses. And then they'll use that to kind of trick the users into, uh, wiring money or changing account information, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, we've seen this time and time again, um, with BC, uh, in business email compromise attacks. Uh, the, I guess the interesting part of this one is that the attackers, uh, did all of the normal things. So they did spear phishing. So they targeted specific CEOs at at, uh, a specific organization. They sent them a targeted phishing email. In this case, they used DocuSign. So they did some research. uh, They targeted specific people. Um, They had a well-crafted phishing email with DocuSign and then they used man-in-the-middle again, like the last story, to capture those MFA OTP codes to gain access to the mallocs. Once they're in, uh, they do some recon, right? They look at the files in SharePoint. They look at the emails, particularly looking for cor- correspondences related to wire transfers or new account setup, a new vendor setup, things like that. And the reason is because they're, look- they're after money, right? They, w- they want to go after the, the money. And uh, one way that attackers maintain persistence is through registering a new multi-factor device. Now, this is something that the article calls uh, a flaw in Office 365, and I think many would agree, right? That, uh, and if, if you're not aware of this, so that you, you will be now, when you log into Office 365 and you go to your account settings and you go to the security information, you can add a new registered device. Like you can sign up a new token or authenticator rather without having to prompt MFA. So if I have my password or a token, right. And I'm signed in, I can create a new, I can add a new registered device to use for multi-factor authentication without being prompted for my initial MFA. So, uh, what that means is if I'm an attacker, I can go in, register my own device, and now I have persistent access to that account, uh, even if I, I kind of get evicted somewhere else. Um, so that's pretty interesting. What not you think, Vector? Yeah, definitely. Uh, scroll down
1: and see. Uh, let's look at the phishing email. See how it looks like.
0: Yeah, this one here.
1: Yeah, that's one of them. Uh, there's also the DocuSign phishing email. And it appears to be a legitimate uh, signing request arrived from DocuSign.
0: Yep, definitely. So yeah, they, they, they used uh, a legitimate DocuSign uh, request, right? To send users to a phishing page um, to steal their credentials. And then, like I said, once in, they do some reconnaissance, right? Um, And that's what the article uh, is really good. It's a really good investigative uh, piece about what attackers are doing once they get access to a mailbox, how to kind of identify that stuff through the unified audit log in the mailbox audit log and advanced audit, which is now called purview audit. Um, So again, it kind of shows, you know, uh, a detailed description of all these things. Now, the other thing that's, that's interesting too, is how this attacker kind of executed their attack. Uh, What they did was, and and like I said, they registered, they, after the reconnaissance and they found an email thread that they could target, right? That was part of some wire transfer, money transfer process. Once they found that, they created uh, lookalike domains. So they created, if I get down to the section here, I think I skip pass it. In the execution section. So in the execution section, it talks about what they did. And and essentially what they did is they found that email chain that they wanted to exploit or take advantage of. They registered fake domains that looked like the actual domains of the people that were in the email or the recipients, things like that. So they created lookalike domains that looked similar. They created a reply all email. And then from that fake domain that they created... They sented an email. They send it <laughs> That's good English, right? They sent an email from that fake email box, uh, that reply all email. So it looks like they were replying to that original thread, but they were using the fake email to send it, and they were also adding additional recipients in the CC field that also looked legitimate, uh, but they were fake emails that were set up ahead of time. So this is all just part of the con, right? They send this email, they say, "Hey, we've got we are we're changing our bank. Uh, here's the new information." It looks like a reply from the original thread, uh, but the user was compromised, um, and that's how they they kind of stole that thread. So hopefully that kind of makes sense, um, kind of what this attack kind of looked like. It's a little bit different from what we would normally see in a BEC. Uh, this article kind of indicates that the threat actor sent the email from the fake email address that they created, which is not super typical. Many times, you know, at least the, the BECs that I've responded to and helped with, uh, the compromised mailbox is the one who either sends or forwards the request or is the recipient of the request. What I see a lot of times is an attacker compromises a mailbox. They set up inbox rules to kind of mask their activity or hide the replies or delete them. Uh, And then they'll use that mailbox to carry out their, their, their scheme, right? They'll attach a new document that says, here's our new account information for wire transfers. You know, please update your information, whatever. So it's a little bit different here um, than what, than what we're normally used to. Um, So that I think kind of is the the interesting part to me. Uh, I'd like to
1: mention that, um, indicators of compromise, um, IOCs are posted on multiple sites and articles. So if you work in a SOC or a SOC-related field, it's uh, highly recommended that you compile them and provide uh, proactive mitigation procedures on the indicators uh, because you wouldn't want to know about this and then get hit by an indicator.
0: Yep. Yeah, and it's not an NLBL, obviously, and it's not a silver bullet, but uh, it's something very low-hanging fruit that you can add, uh, throw those indicators in. so that's a good thing to do. Cool. So uh, some of the defenses for this, I think we you know, we usually like to talk about that on each of these pieces if, where applicable. So one thing you can do is instead of using just traditional MFA with a prompt, you know how you say approve or deny when you get that MFA prompt, instead of using that or a token code, you know, like the six-digit code that you have to enter, you can use something called number matching. And number matching is uh, similar to what you're used to where you get an MFA prompt, but there's a little code that shows up on the browser. So where you're logging in, a code shows up. And if the number doesn't match the code that's shown on your device, then you know that you know there's, there's probably a problem there or, or something suspicious is going on. Um, so number matching can be a good way to mitigate this uh, this type of attack at least the initial stages of it, right? The initial compromise. And just like we talked about in the last article, uh, FIDO2, UTF keys, things like YubiKeys, uh, physical security keys can greatly reduce the chance of uh, a successful phishing attack as well. Along with uh, user education, user awareness, and of course for more of the financial side of the fence and kind of process oriented things, having dual approvals. So making sure that, you know, the same person who can request a wire can also approve it. Or when you set up a new vendor, making sure that there's some sort of out of band communication to validate that, or when there's changes to account information, making sure there's multiple forms of approval that are not just email based uh, approvals is a good idea. Cool. Anything else you wanted to share about that that one uh, that article?
1: Um, So you pretty knocked it out of the park. Uh, I would say since these people didn't spoof um, their fake domains and emails, uh, it's kind of easier to catch um, some indicators that you could walk yep. in your environment.
0: Yeah, definitely. There were some things that were highly suspicious, and this article referenced that they shut down the attack fairly soon into the attackers. Uh, you know, life cycle or playbook. And w- something that, that we monitor as well is, is logins from out of the country, suspicious logins, you know, things like that can be good indicators that there's something suspicious going on on, a, on an account or a mailbox. So those are really good indicators. And, and I think Singapore was one of the locations that, that the Thractor's logged in from. So if you've got a, lo- a user logging in from Los Angeles and that's, you know, where their headquarters are or their home, and then all of a sudden they log in from Singapore, that should raise some red flags. That should raise an alert that something strange is going on. Cool. So the last article uh, we're going to talk about is uh, about LNK files. This is the rise of the rise of LNK files and ways to detect them. Uh, so I thought this was a good rundown. Um, this is an article by Julian Ferdinand Voigel. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Apologize. Uh, but really good article that talks about macros, LNK files, how they're used in the wild, and possible detections. Um, this is something that, you know, with the reduction in the attack service of macros, with Microsoft disabling untrusted macros by default, uh, attackers are looking to adapt their techniques, right? Uh, now, using LNK files is not new. Uh, this is a technique has been around for a while, actually. A number of uh, security firms have covered this. Mandiant has a number of articles that go back pretty far, number of years. And uh, so this is not a new technique. It's just a resurgence. Uh, and the reason is because LNK files are, are fairly benign. Um, they're just shortcuts. So for those not familiar, LNK files are... Uh, shortcuts to a file—it could be a folder or an application—and uh, .lnk files, like I said, themselves are, are are legitimate in the eyes of Windows, but just like everything in Windows, they can be abused. Um, and we, there's this article talks about the the different ways uh, that .lnk files are being abused. I Get down to the section. So uh, they talk about. LNK files being used for persistence, being used for initial access, uh, and that's the part that's particularly interesting to me uh, in the context of this discussion. Is LNK files uh, are, are most commonly seen during phishing during initial access, and the reason is because you in the LNK file itself you can create a link to CMD or to PowerShell, and then if as you know you can use CMD. Uh, you can use a number of utilities, built-in Windows utilities, and even PowerShell to call down or download uh, your next stage of your malware. So they're using LNK files to kind of reference and, and call, download their malware from the internet, and then execute that. Um, so interesting article um, that kind of talks about... Um, using LNK files for initial access and uh, some ideas for detection. Uh, Any thoughts on this, Victor, as far as uh, initial access or detection goes?
1: Uh, So a challenge that... uh, One challenge is that uh, LNK files are mostly used for benign purposes, so it's a little bit harder to detect these, I would say. Um, But, uh, yeah... For one, one way you you could detect this is uh, detection before delivery. So when delivered as email attachments, uh, LNK files are usually blocked based on their file extension. Um, yep. So, uh, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, a lot of times we'll see LNK files uh, contained within zip files or they'll be kind of uh, layered in. Or containerized as the article says there'll be a zip file and then an ISO and then an image and then a uh, then an LNK file they'll kind of be all wrapped up compressed into one so it's harder to detect the LNK uh, execution itself um, but this is not uh, this is not uh, impossible um, to detect a lot of uh, kind of the first step is email filtering make sure you have good security, email security filtering to block suspicious attachments or uh, making sure your email security platform can kind of scan the email for indicators. One of the indicators could be if there's a zip file and it gives the password in the email, that could be suspicious. And maybe we rank that a little bit higher in our our algorithm, right? Because a lot of times attackers will send a, a zip file that contains a uh, an ISO that contains an LNK or something like that. And they say, hey, here's the password 1234 to open it. Uh, so that is a known technique. So that could be something your email security platform checks for. Um, but uh, so so that's the first step. It's kind of blocking it, like you said, before it gets there with email security filtering. The next step is in, in kind of going in order of layered defense, right? We've talked about this before on other episodes we want to layer defense, right? We don't want to just rely on email security. We don't want to just rely on people not clicking on links or opening up attachments layer defense, right? Multiple controls to help prevent the same thing. So after the email security next is kind of our endpoint security, our EDR. Uh, do we have anything that can look at processes uh, in more depth, maybe Sysmon combined with some EDR telemetry can help identify this looking at suspicious command lines that are executed or suspicious PowerShell execution is very common. Uh, So a good EDR should be able to pick up on some of these things and help detect and prevent some of these. And then the last thing is, uh, or not the last thing, but one of the other things is that next stage, right? It has to communicate out to something to download their malware. Um, Having a good Content filtering or DNS web filtering system, and a good proxy in place to help mitigate that. So maybe it's calling out to a domain that's been newly registered, and you block that through your your proxy device, like Cloud or uh, not Cloudflare, uh Cisco Umbrella has that capability, right? And there's others that do that, where you can block access to newly registered domains or domains that have a certain categorization. So having good web filtering can help prevent that next stage call out, although that can be difficult as well. So there's all these things and you got to kind of think about it in a layer defense approach uh, to protect and mitigate against these things, Uh, but not impossible. But this technique is definitely here to stay. uh, Wouldn't you say, Victor?
1: Uh, Definitely. I would say uh, one thing to add is uh, it'd be very useful to uh, use a sandbox if this ever comes into your environment. I uh, just use a sandbox. Uh, for example, I use uh, app.anyrun and uh, that just extracts a ton of IOCs where you can uh, specifically go into and look at and uh, see what process yeah. they
0: did. Yeah, it's a really good point, Victor. And some email security products have built-in sandboxing um, that can detonate those emails, open up those attachments and, and see what's in it. And then, like you said, after the fact, if you notice something suspicious, you can go in and triage it with things like any run uh, Joe's sandbox, you know, there's a whole bunch of them that are out there that you can use. So yeah, that's a really good point and, and something you can use to, to triage this and find out, you know, what this process is or what this application is doing, what this attachment's going to do when I open it, that kind of thing. So really good stuff. All right, cool. Well, uh, wrapping up here, uh, that's our three stories for this week. Uh, so, if you got value from this episode, or if we said something that was interesting, or useful, or entertaining, uh, feel free to give us a like, subscribe, share. Um, it helps us kind of reach more people and and share uh, what knowledge we have and the experience that we have. Uh, share what we're working on, and keep you guys up to date on all things cyber related. So, appreciate it. Hope you got value.